I hope you're strapped in and strapped on. Communication and boundary setting and negotiation. Communication is lubrication. Well, I like in a pretty kinky world. The goal with this type of knowledge is to just do your best with it and know that you're going to be funky <laughs> and that's okay. Cool. Alrighty. So uh, welcome back, folks, to another episode of Sex Existentialist. Um, today I am joined by Nadesh, who is a sex scholar, writer, and founder of Pleasure Science. Welcome, welcome, Nadesh. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to talk about all the sexy things. Yes, I love it. Um, so on your on your website, Nadej, I, I think you describe yourself as a helper of girls, gays, and theys. And I yep. just wanted to highlight that because I'm a, <laughs> I'm a big fan of like the guys, gals, gender nonconforming pals writing. Ooh, and I, I've never heard that one. Yeah, I hadn't heard yours either. And so I'm very into the rhyming convention to be like inclusive. So <laughs> Oh, totally. And you know, it's funny. There's like all these studies about how when you say something that rhymes people will remember it twice as fast so as a sex educator I try to find things that rhyme like pleasure is the measure for good sex and not orgasm or like oh communication God, yeah. is lubrication and so like I'm always picking up on things that rhyme because as you're a sex educator too right it's like I'm trying to be like how do I make sure you remember this message let me make it silly and childlike and hopefully you'll remember that's that's actually great. I need to write some of those down because I teach youth pretty exclusively. And so, um, you know, their their parents have always enrolled them in the class and they know what they're getting into. But I I teach a like a pleasure comprehensive based program, which is why I do it not in a school. Um, and yeah. so um, they're not always, you know, they've gotten the puberty and anatomy conversation so much, but they're not um, they're not used to the way that the rest of the world talks about sex um, in a, a pleasure. Well, not really the rest of the world, I guess I guess I should say folks that uh, you and I probably surround ourselves with. And so, um, you know, they laugh at phrases like skin hunger. Like that's oh a really big God. one where it comes up and I try to like talk about things like skin hunger and they're like, why is it zombies? Like, why is sex so weird? Like rhyming <laughs> might be a really great tool for me to like make it fun without them roasting me. But I'm always getting a little bit roasted, so. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And that's also really incredible work because I think what's something that's difficult as a sex educator is working with people who are under 18 because of the way that, which is completely fair and good that we are protective of kids and of young adults, but there is like a really big lack of sex education. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but in the United States, only 18 states require sex education to be medically accurate, right? So yeah. it's perfectly legal for sex ed to lie to youth and for institutions to do that. But then as sex educators, it's also very difficult to work with groups who are under 18. Um, and so it's it's this very sticky thing to do. So the fact that you specifically work with those groups, I mean, that's like some of the best work that we can do. And so I think that's really incredible. Thank you. Yeah, I, I do love it. I mean, it can be a really challenging group. Um, and one of the things that we have to talk about a lot, um, not to go on too much of a tangent on this, but it is is media literacy, right? Which is something mm -hmm. that, you know, when I was their age, did not have to think about, at least not in the same way. And so a lot of it is um, trying to find the balance of, you know, we're not 
dumb. Like we acknowledge that you're going to likely engage in some kind of sexually explorative behavior, either by yourself or with another person. But like, here are the state laws around child pornography, right? Like if you're yeah. going to send, if you're going to send a nude Snapchat at the age of, of 14 or 15, um, we get, you might have the urge to do that, but like realistically, here's what you can do. And like, truthfully like trying to encourage things like mutual masturbation if you're under the age of 18 <laughs> as opposed to sending like nude pictures like yeah. hey y'all as weird as it sounds like this is safer like here's some things you can do that are risk-free anyway it is all very sticky and, and weird sticky pun intended um but, <laughs> always uh, pun intended always I love pun it. intended <laughs> but uh yeah so it's it is it can be very fulfilling but um I need as many tools as I can to communicate with that demographic so um cool okay so before we get kind of too uh too much in the weeds here uh I would love to have you um you know tell our guests a little bit about yourself um specifically how you identify whatever that means to you yeah well my name is Nadej and I in work identify as a sex scholar and astrologer and then in my own life I identify as a queer femme I I love the like movement that is really going on with gender and it's something I've felt really connected to for a long time before it hit the mainstream. And it's, it's been something that is really interesting to me, like someone who has been raised and socialized as a woman, but who doesn't always feel connected to womanhood and being in the queer community, seeing how flexible gender can be in a really beautiful way. Um, has made me really relate a lot to the word femme and to femininity, um, but to not always relate to the word woman. And so that actually, in terms of my personal life, is actually something I'm really thinking about a lot. And, um, and my pronouns are she and they, because I do feel like there's a little bit more to us all than the gender we learn about growing up and the genders we don't learn about growing up because gender nonconformity has been something that in cultures throughout history um, for thousands and thousands of years. And they crop up in all different religions, all different countries. And so it's, um, yeah, it's a queer femme is, is how I personally identify. And it's just an interesting kind of, I think, ever growing thing. Our identities are always shifting and society is always kind of influencing our identities as well, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And, um, I love, I love hearing that. I mean, it's a goal of, of mine on the show to have, uh, folks from, um, various stages of their sexuality and gender exploration journey. And I think, um, to your point, like society plays an important role in the way that we perceive ourselves and, gender but that it's fluid right and so um I love the the identification of identifying with the word femme and femininity but not the word woman right because those things don't have to be um intertwined the way that we're taught that they are so I think that's awesome um and something that's for me like in the in the space has been really cool to see more and more over the last like five to ten years I feel like we're talking about gender so much um and it's a beautiful thing because gender roles really influence the way we have sex in some bad ways like if you're someone listening and you're not as connected to the gender revolution that's going on right now still thinking about your own gender roles is really important for you and your sex life 
life and your relationships because gender roles are something that we are taught. They are definitely not intrinsic to who human beings are and they definitely don't help us enjoy sex. <laughs> Unless it's totally. like a kinky, you know, like you're going in and, and setting up a specific kinky situation right. and that's different. But I think when we are so connected to the roles that we see and feel like we need to emulate in order to be accepted in society, then that's just a way we can repress ourselves and that can have negative effects on your sexuality. Yeah, totally. Um, I love that. I have so much to say on that, but I feel like I can <laughs> I can plug it in with some of the other topics that we'll get to in a minute. So I'll hold I'll hold my tongue for now. Um, so as I shared with you, kind of advance of recording, um, I love to have guests share a sex or dating anecdote uh, for our listeners to really get to know you, particularly in the context of being like a person who has sex or engages in uh, interpersonal relationships, as many people do. <laughs> so <laughs> what is it. a what is a classic Nadej anecdote? I, you know, I'm really inspired by the fact that you work with like youth and it made me think of the first time I actually had a threesome. And this was one of my first sexual experiences. And I was a teenager. I think I was 14. It's so um, funny. I had, I had a really early sexual experience with multiple partners too. And people yeah. always like, anyway, people always act like it's astonishing. Like, I don't know, being a teenager, situations come up. Yeah. And like, we have hormones and we're curious, like, yeah. and this is like the generations that are coming now have a much more open and different experience, I think, with being able to explore sexuality. So I also, th I mean, I do think that our parents were hoes too, and their parents were, ho we were all hoes. Okay. For but sure. I, there's been um, a real embrace of like sexual empowerment. So, but anyway, the story, which I do think is actually quite an Adej story. So I'm pretty sure I was like 14 or 15 and I was at my best friend's house and it was me, her, and another girl. And they were both, so when I was a teenager, just to paint the picture, I had braces, I was very skinny, I did not have boobs, I wished I had boobs, I was just like, I feel like, in fact, at that time, I probably wanted to be a woman really bad, and I felt like I had this, you know, little stick body that was not mm. very attractive, and boys never flirted with me. And um, my two friends were just like bombshells. Like I said, we were all 14 and 15, but they looked like they were 17 and 18. And they always had Jealous. like, yeah, no, they, they were bombshells. And I, I think just because I was funny, everyone really liked me, but I, I was not a bombshell. So anyway, we're all hanging out at my friend's house. And the two girls who are bombshells were like, let's invite some boys over. And that was always so exciting, like an exciting thing. And they were always talking to cute boys. So I was like, okay, yes, like you'll bring cute <laughs> guys and hopefully one of them will want me so anyway <laughs> they they started texting these boys and the, none of the boys like they were it was a specific group of boys and they were like doing something they weren't going to come for hours and we were at the house and I think her parents weren't home and that was why we wanted the boys to come over I don't know it was it was a while ago Fair. but basically they broke into the wine cabinet and they started drinking. So I started drinking and we all got a little bit tipsy. And then my two friends were just like, fuck it. We want like to have sex. And so then they started kissing and then they started kissing me. And then we all kind of just started exploring each other's bodies, like on the kitchen floor, like drunk teenage girls. And we, you know, all kind of like mutually and solo masturbated a little bit like with each other and and like kind of ate each other out a little bit just it was very explorative and it was very sweet um and then we all you know 
kind of tuckered ourselves out and we're like, okay, like now let's watch a movie. And then it was at that point that the guys were like, okay, like we can come over. We were like, no, we're good. You don't have to come (laughs) over anymore. Like it's all fine. And it's so funny because it like years later when I was 19, that was the first time I slept with a man and had like stereotypical penis vagina sex. And for a long time I was like, oh, that was when I lost my virginity. And it wasn't until I, I started exploring my sexuality in a meaningful way and realized that I was attracted to a lot of different people that I realized like, wait, I lost my virginity in an epic threesome with two hot babes. I did not lose it with this guy. And my when I had sex with a man for the first time, it was very anticlimactic. And I was just yeah. like, is this really what people care about? This sucks. And and it's just funny to me. Like when I look back now as an adult, like now I'm queer. And the two friends, by the way, don't identify as queer or gay or even bisexual. So it's just like funny to me that like this whole thing had happened and I had this beautiful sexual experience that I completely minimalized and didn't even think of as sex because we were all women. There wasn't a man there. And then it turns out as an adult, I'm like this gay sex educator. (laughs) Like, so it it feels like it really came full circle, but it was this really, um, yeah, that, that was, I'd say that's a pretty quintessential Nadege story and proof that young adults have sexual desire and urges and that that can be healthy and beautiful and sweet. I love that. Um, I, I love the emphasis on beautiful and sweet as well because I think when people I mean there obviously there's so much fetish fetishization around uh queer sex queer yeah. anything a lot of time and especially with um you know young femmes teenagers yep. like there's yeah 100%. so anyway yeah thinking about it as um explorative I mean that's what sex at that age should be right like you totally. should be able to try things on and like it doesn't have to be yeah we like fucked hard and all came at the same time and that's why we counted it like it can just be sampling like it should be sampling absolutely and that's I mean I love the way you said sampling that was truly what it felt like that sexual experience because it was like we were kissing and then at one point one of the girls got really turned on so she was like I'm just gonna masturbate on the kitchen floor and then we were like it looked that's really hot and then we start you know and then we kind like it was very so innocent but so explorational and so sweet I love that. Well, that's a very good story and like wholesome. I don't, I mean, yeah. maybe not for everyone, but no, I think it's a very <laughs> wholesome, to me, very wholesome story and like something that I um, think everyone should aspire to experience, whether they're, you know, early in their sexual experiences or not, just having a chance to like explore. And, and I think everyone should try at some point a threesome. I don't know. I've, I've had a few myself. Yeah, they're fun. It's I hit and miss. Yeah, like yeah. It, it, it is hit or miss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but For you sure. know, all sex is hit or miss. So yeah, yeah, that is a really good. <laughs> Just because it's a yeah, monogamous and vanilla does not mean it's going to be good. Um, yep. So awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I know we've touched a little bit on your professional background, but I would love for you to walk uh, folks through, um, you know the creation of pleasure science of your brand and um, your background. I know it's been an interesting one and, and certainly one that relates to kind of your status now as a, as a sex sexpert, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, it was a really interesting journey to get to the creation of my brand pleasure science. And 
I would say like growing up, I was always the, I was always very open-minded and very social. And so I had a lot of friends and a lot of different friend groups. And I was always the person it seemed in every friend group that I found myself in that people would be sharing sex stuff with me and, and being like, am I normal? Is that okay? And, and so when I got to college, um, I went to community college. I did not do well in high school. I think they passed me because they just did not want me to come back because <laughs> I was, I wasn't a bad student, but I was just very social. And I think I distracted a lot of people <laughs> and they were just like, let's let her graduate. I was a class clown. <laughs> yep. A hundred percent. I was a class clown. Yeah. So anyway, I went to community college and I've always loved writing. So I figured I'd be an English major and I transferred to UC Berkeley. And when I arrived, I was immediately a junior and I was in this English department and every class I was expected to take was one I had already taken in community college. Oh. And I was just like, and I was paying for school myself. So I was like, I am not going to pay to learn what I already know. And the curriculum and the advisors didn't really care about that opinion <laughs> that I had. Um, but luckily... Yeah. When you're a transfer student at a UC, and I think this is for all University of California schools, you have to take what's called an American credits course your first semester. And they had one in the gender and women's studies department. So mm. I ended up, so I was in all of these English classes that I hated. And then I was in this one class that I loved. And I was like, what is this gender women's studies department? And so I, I ended up switching departments from English to gender and women's studies. However, because I was transferring as a junior and that was a small department they were like if you choose to do this you need to start writing a research paper now that will be ready before you graduate so what is something that you could study for the next two years in like the feminist field and I was like mm. sex sex will not bore me that is what I will study <laughs> and it couldn't have been more perfect I started um I went to porn companies and like went on film sets and watched people have sex I ended up writing my thesis on consensual obscenity which is basically BDSM portrayals of sex and pornography and how people like my question really with that paper specifically was we know that the actors are are consenting or we're assuming the actors are consenting but on the actual film we don't see those conversations take place mm -hmm. so how do they translate the consent that has happened and how do we pick up on that and so that was really where my professional and academic career started as a sex scholar. And after I graduated, I started writing articles and I just kept up with the research because I really did love it. And in 2019, I sort of kind of like, I guess, came out of the professional closet and was like, <laughs> I'm a sex educator. I'm going to put my face first and I'm, I'm going to, you know, put myself out there. And I had always loved the term pleasure science. Mm -hmm. I had never seen it any, it was, it was like one day, I feel like that phrase was just sort of whispered in my ear from the universe. I had never really seen it anywhere, but I thought like, that's exactly what I do. Mm -hmm. I'm just researching pleasure and I'm a scientist. And I, I had loved that name and I kept thinking like, okay, next year I'll make a pleasure science something. And then finally in 2019, I was like, what am I waiting for? So I took all of my written work and I got some professional photos and I was like, okay, let's go. And it, it really took off. Um, and in fact, I have a book coming out in a few weeks, which I think by the time this episode airs, the book will already be out, but it's all about sextrology. So if anyone is interested in astrology and sex... Um, you can go ahead and find it on Amazon. But yeah, that was really, that was how pleasure science really kind of morphed and grew. And now it's, 
it's a really wonderful, impactful business that I am really proud of. And I'm, I'm really proud of it more so because people really show up for themselves. Like they, mm. they satiate their curiosity. They, they read the research or things like that. And I think that the reason why pleasure science has continued to gain traction is because it's a really optimistic place to learn about sex and people want optimism, I think, in mm. their sex life. Yes, absolutely. I think we, I mean, everyone could use more optimism when thinking oh, about absolutely. sex, right? I mean, um, and, and I feel like, every, and going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of, um, you know, broadening what we think about sexuality to include things like like gender, uh, identity, yeah. and expression. So um, that's great. Also, I feel like so many people, maybe again, I'm I'm in a uh, an echo chamber. I feel like so many people have an interest in sex and astrology. So that's super they do. exciting. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I started studying astrology. In fact, the friend who I slept with in my little story that I told, um, she showed me astrology when we were 15 years old. She was like, there's this really cool thing. And we went to this bookshop and like, I've been studying astrology for like 15 years. Um, I love that. and it's, it's one of the ways that I actually help people is doing mm. sextrology readings because I realized really early on that people open up with astrology and it's just a really great way to get someone to start talking about themselves because sometimes it's hard to talk about sex but if we have this fun and personal like thing like astrology kind of guiding the way people can really get to the root of some of their blocks a lot quicker mm. yeah no I think sometimes and you know I'm I encourage everyone listening pretty much at every episode to seek um, to seek those prompts wherever they feel comfortable, whether it's astrology or another method, but that sometimes we we simply need um, need that prompting, right? To to yeah. dig deeper and and sort of get down to, as you said, the root of of certain um, perceptions and and certain belief systems to try to um, you know adapt them accordingly, or or just try to understand ourselves better so that we can be open to you know, who we are and what role we want to play in, in our own story, so to speak. Totally. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, yeah. So you, you touched on this a bit in, in terms of, uh, your experience, uh, writing about consensual obscenity and, and, uh, communication and, and consent. One of the things that I find to be of, of most interest to me in, in talking about sex education is, um, open-minded exploration, but being yeah. able to to do that w with a partner or partners, if you so choose, um, and communicate um, in a way that allows for some of that sampling that we've been talking about, yeah. but, but, but safely. And I'd love to, um, you know, as it pertains to the BDSM community or not, would love to just hear you talk a little bit about the way that you and your work think about communication and, and exploration. Totally. You know, communication, like I said at the beginning of this episode, communication is lubrication. I love like <laughs> your brain is your biggest sex organ. And so being able to talk about sex is really important when it comes to the sex that we're having with ourselves or the sex that we're having with others. And I'd say like right off the bat, the, the, there's two big things when it comes to sexual communication that I like really live by. And the first is what I call the three T's, 
tone, timing, and turf. And I'm not the first sex mm. educator to like, you know, talk about this, but um, tone basically means like, if you're going to talk about sex with a lover, have a curious tone. It's mm. really best to maintain that curiosity and even ask things as a question if you can, because sex is so personal and we have so many triggers and traumas around it that when we're talking about sex with a lover, if you're able to maintain a curious tone with one another, it's just a really nice reminder that no one is being blamed, no one is being attacked, no one is being rejected. You know, we're just trying to figure out how to be in a pleasurable moment together. And so tone is one of the T's. The other T is timing. And this, this might sound funny, like a no brainer, but it is best to talk about sex when you aren't hungry, when you aren't irritable, when you aren't tired, timing is really important, you know? And so that is another thing to keep in mind. And then the last one is turf. If you're going to give sexual feedback or talk about the sex you're having with a lover, it's best not to have that conversation where you have sex or in places mm. where you have sex, because it can confuse the reason why you're talking about this topic. And it can lead to a situation where one person is like, I want to give you sexual feedback. And the other person is like, oh, so you're initiating sex? Like, right. <laughs> you know, um, and then so those the, like that right there, I'd say that's kind of like a sort of holy grail for sexual communication and a nice, easy, fun thing that I, I try to live by. And then the other thing when it comes to sexual communication, and this is something I learned in the BDSM community, is mm. that it's really important to use I statements and not you statements. Mm. And what I mean by that is instead of saying, like, you don't kiss me enough, saying, I really like it when you kiss me. I, I wish you would kiss me more. And that, like, there's just such a different way that that can hit, you know, in a conversation. Mm. And I think we're so conditioned to use you statements, especially the broad generalized you, as in, like, you know, you say the word you, but you really mean a group of people or a generalization. Right. But the word you is is confusing in English. Like I speak French and English. So we have a you that signifies a group. And then mm -hmm. we have a you that signifies I'm talking to you singular personally. But in English, sure. we don't have that. And so one of the ways that sexual communication can get real fucked real quick and not in the fun way <laughs> is that we're using you language. And you could be talking in a general term, just like I did right now. And your partner will think like, but I didn't do that. I don't mm. do that, you know? And so when we use I language, it really makes it about, you know, the two of you, but it also makes it about like, these are my needs. And the best thing that I can do is express them. And then what someone else chooses to do with that information, you know, that's up to them. Hopefully they want to compromise and work with you. But using I language and I statements is such a good way to avoid unnecessary conflicts that could happen. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of the I statements, I know that's something that I've had to learn and, and frankly, like re- configure myself to to work sort of in, a, in alignment with um through like bystander training and things conflict resolution yeah. and de-escalation especially when I'm talking to youth about um you know building healthy relationships sexual or otherwise um yeah. trying to have that foundations so that when you do go into those sexual conversations you are able to communicate effectively and not um I, I you know sex sex should be inclusive of constructive feedback but people obviously feel 
vulnerable and um, self-conscious and embarrassed in talking about sex really easily because of the yeah. way that, you know, we as a culture talk about it or, or frame it. So um, I think that's really important. I will say that the three T's I feel like have blown my mind. I, <laughs> I, I do, I do think a lot, like I try to ask questions more than make statements when talking to my partner about sex because like I, more than anything like I try to just frame it internally like I'm trying to get clarity on the situation yeah so that I can you know like communicate what works and what's not working right yeah. but um thinking about timing and turf I feel like I've, I've always thought like okay well when when we're in a good mood would be the ideal timing but thinking <laughs> about everything else that the body craves within a certain day like yeah. irritability is can be moments away. <laughs> oh, careful. totally. Totally. Yeah. And you know, you can do like, I mess up on sexual communication all the time. Like they're one of the, like another really good lesson with sexual communication is like, if you want to have a deep conversation about sexual feedback, the best time to do it is not like during or right after sex. Right. I, um, yeah, I, I make I'm that mistake so all the time. <laughs> like, like this is aftercare. Yeah. Yep, exactly. I'm like, so let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the way you used your tongue or something. Yeah. And then like, <laughs> It's just so funny to me. And I'll be like, Nadej, why did you, you literally know better. You literally write about this. Like what, what is, what's wrong with you? But you know, so I think that the goal with this type of knowledge is to just do your best with it and know mm -hmm. that you're going to be funky <laughs> and that's yes. okay. Yeah. I love that. No, I, I am very, I'm, I'm a chatty Kathy, as I say, not surprising. I have a podcast, um, <laughs> but I, as someone who has a cis man, as a partner, like yeah. a, a post post nut, so to speak, like he's not present, right? Like, he's, <laughs> like he's he's horizontal and ready to be asleep. Whereas, obviously, for me as a vulva owner, like orgasms can often be energizing, depending on what they yeah. are, right, or what the, what the encounter has been. So a lot of time, I'm like, blah, 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 blah. like let's have a conversation about that. I want a debrief, and it's like not <laughs> not the right time. Like he's not, he's unconscious. So um, I, it's something that I think about so much and, and I always do it in the place where you've had sex. Like that's something that I really am going to have to think about because it's so easy to just, you know, prop myself up on a pillow and be like, awesome. So let's talk about that. And that's, yeah, not, um, the signals can get really mixed. I feel like for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but we do our best. And I think that the very fact that you are talking about sex though, I think that's the first step. So mm. however, anyone needs to get comfortable learning how to talk about sex, like don't make yourself feel bad for any of it because just the very act of getting uncomfortable and being like, can we talk about this? That's a huge win. You know, it really yeah. is. Yeah. And for, for people listening, um, and I won't speak for you, Nadej, but like I talk about sex all the time and it still can be intimidating to have a conversation with a partner about it. Right. So 100%. it's very, it's, yeah. Cause it's, it's that vulnerability. It's much easier for me to talk about it at a high level and educate people on the facts and objective elements of sex and, uh, then talking about my personal feelings. So hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I, um, I agree. And what I love about those things too is that um, those things being the uh, communication tools you're just talking about uh, is that they can apply to any kind of 
sexual encounter, right? I think yeah. a lot of people think that if you're doing something that is like air quotes traditional or vanilla, um, you don't have to communicate about it. Uh, yeah. And that's just not the case. Yeah. No, you totally should always talk about the sex you're having. Yeah. Totally. Um, so I know that you trained uh, for two years as a dominatrix. Um, yes, I did. <laughs> obviously, obviously studied uh, BDSM uh, in that way as well as in others that you've already shared. Um, and, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about kink and fetish communities um, in order to encourage folks to explore, but also predominantly to normalize uh, the experiences that we treat as taboo or other, yeah. right? Because yeah. um, I think first and foremost, like we can learn so much from those communities um, yeah. because of uh, the practices that they've sort of had to implement in order for those explorations to be safe and consensual. Um, yeah. I would kind of love, well, one, if you could kind of define the concept of a dominatrix a little bit for folks who are not familiar with the idea, um, but also talk about um you know, communication and uh, boundary setting and negotiation as it pertains to um, more of those taboo kink and fetish scenarios? Absolutely. Well, a dominatrix or a professional dominant um, or a dom, those are all the same thing. Um, it's just a professional person who is well-versed in BDSM, so how to maybe tie someone up without cutting off circulation, how to step into certain roles of dominance, like, you know, you can set up a fun scene, and a scene is basically something where two people agree, like, oh, okay, you're going to be the teacher and I'm the student, and it could be something as simple as that, and so a dominatrix is usually a femme-presenting person who you hire to maybe explore impact play. So getting spanked or getting flogged or getting whipped. Impact play is anytime something makes an impact on your body in a sensual way. Um, and so there are people who are trained in all of these erotic, you know, fun kind of pain mixing with pleasure and power play situations. Power play is that kind of dominant submissive relationship that has gotten very mainstream because of 50 shades of gray power play is which is um i i loved those movies i never read the books but the movies were super fun um yeah. definitely a fantasy but like it was yeah, hot um sure. but anyway power play is where you play with power during an erotic moment and by the way people who are a dominatrix or a professional dominant don't usually ha like have sex with clients um, and you can go to a professional dungeon and hire someone again to like spank you or to, you know, call you a bad person while like tying you up or things like that. There's so it is an erotic thing and it is sex work, but it doesn't always mean that sex is going to be a part of the service. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, also in a lot of places, prostitution is not really legalized. And so, you know, that's not going to be a part of the deal that you're paying for. But it sure. is like a professional way to explore um, BDSM if that's something that is interested to interesting to someone. And you can work with someone who's a professional, which can be like a little bit safer, I would say, um, if you're looking to explore those things as opposed to like 
just trying to find someone um, that you maybe don't know very well. If you go to like a professional dungeon, there tend to be security and systems in place to make sure that everyone from the sex workers to the clients are going to have a good time and a respectful time. Um, Mm. But yeah, I mean, that's a dominatrix is just like a professional kinkster. (laughs) And kink is so varied. So it can really be very diverse what you would go to a dominatrix for. Um, But yeah, there's there's so many fun things that you could explore with that. And I would say, in terms of boundaries, um, I mean, with BDSM specifically, because BDSM has so many elements that's why communication is such a big part of this community in in a really beautiful way. And I'd say like the best communication, sexual communication tips I've ever learned came from porn stars and BDSM Mm. professionals because sex workers do sex for a living. And when you do sex for a living, you know how to do it in a way where you get respected and you respect your body. And of course that doesn't always happen. And they're, you know, the sex industry, can be a very dark place, but it can also be a place that is very empowering. And I don't think people recognize just how empowered a lot of sex workers, porn stars, dominatrixes, or professional dominants are, because they know how to hold the respect for their own body and their work. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's, um, in my experience as well, right? I think, you know, I live in a world where people, um, want sex workers to have rights, right? Oh, 100%. But, they really should have rights. It's really yeah. messed up that they don't. And prostitution and sex work and all these things, it's the oldest damn industry humans have had. So like, I, get over yourself and give sex workers rights. <laughs> when I was a senior, maybe a junior in high school, I remember my English teacher. Um, I don't know why we were doing this in English class, but we basically were debating, you know, whether or not prostitution should be legalized. And mm. I, I remember raising my hand and being like, it's the oldest job in the book. Yeah. Um, it's insane that we still are not, you know, legalizing it so that we can create protection for yeah. the people participating in the industry. And my teacher went, well, murder has been going on since the start of humanity. And I was like, I'm sorry. But is murder a job? What? <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm sorry. Is that are you an English teacher trying to use like a fallacy that doesn't make any sense on, on my argument? Like it was, yeah, just insane to me that people, yeah. Anyway, people, people because it's taboo. I feel like that's why people can connect something like murder to prostitution and they are not the same thing. And I think also when it comes to sex work, it's also really important for us to recognize that sex work and sex trafficking are also two very different things. Sex workers who are empowered, who are autonomous, who are doing what they want to do and are good at it are not the same thing as people and children who are exploited or trafficked. And that is an entirely different you know, thing that is very, very serious that we really do need to take seriously. And if we were to find ways to protect and legalize sex work, we actually would have a much easier time stopping sex trafficking. And that is what can be really frustrating about this Mm. issue, because I think that sex work and sex trafficking get conflated so often. And it's such a complicated and very historical thing both sex trafficking and sex work they have been around forever and so in order to really understand 
like why it would be so positive to support sex workers. It's so complicated. And I think most people aren't going to really take the time to look through the details of that and really see that like this kind of policing mentality we have for sex workers is actually making the whole problem worse. Um, But yeah. Totally. And I I do think as well that people, um, even if they don't jump to the, you know, I guess if they don't, if their brains don't link, I mean, everyone's does, I feel like, but sex work to something like sex trafficking, there is sort of the secondary tier of, oh, like someone is, you know, prostituting themselves on the internet because they can't pay their bills and it's like a last resort and it's, it removes all of the agency and empowerment from Mm -hmm. sex work. Um, and, and certainly, yeah, I'm, I'm totally on the same page, but, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, I, I think I think about communication in the BDSM community as being a necessity uh, for safety, but I yeah. really like your point that for folks who are professional kinksters, um, you know, part of it is just like getting good at a day-to-day job and having respect yeah. in your career like everyone who works a nine-to-five does. 100%. Like, it's getting good at the work that you do and like... Yeah, I think most like regular everyday people would benefit so much if they like talked to a sex worker for an hour. <laughs> they would learn so much that they could use in their actual sex life that yeah. would make it so much better. Like something that you had actually said earlier, like you mentioned aftercare and like for anyone who doesn't know what that is in BDSM because BDSM can be like an intentional and intense sexual experience, we always have something called aftercare where when you're negotiating with someone, like if I was negotiating with a client back when I was a dominatrix, one of the questions I would ask them is when this is over, how do I take care of you? Mm. What do you need? You know, what do you need to feel back in your body? What do you need to feel kind of like closure from the experience? So that way you can leave feeling good and feeling refreshed and whatever. And sometimes it was as simple as like, I just need a bottle of water and for you to like, call me a good girl. Or (laughs) sometimes it was like, yep. (laughs) And sometimes it was just like, can you just hold me for five minutes, you know, and, and that's it. Or read me a bedtime story. That was another one. Um, But anyway, you know, and aftercare, that thought of aftercare is something that everyone should have and talk about with their partner in their sex life, because disconnected sex or feeling disconnected right after sex is one of the biggest triggers that I see people have or fear in my private practice where I like work with people as a sex coach or work with people in sextrology readings. And if couples or lovers were to talk about aftercare and what they needed after sex to just feel supported, there would be so many like issues that would no longer be an issue in in that couple's sex life or in that lovership, you know? So it's yeah it's that's another like really big thing with um with consent and boundaries and and negotiation yeah i i think um well yeah i mean obviously i'm i'm a proponent of aftercare um as well (laughs) i think um for me too and this was part of what i thought about kind of at the at the start of the show when you um were talking about gender and um the way that our gender identity and gender expression um plays into who we are as um a sexual being and i think um for me like and and i this for me relates to aftercare because it was something that 
in terms of the the role that I choose to play in uh, a sexual encounter scene um, came to fruition for me through uh, aftercare conversation really mm. is like being being um, you know post-coital if you will and like mm-hmm. <laughs> being able to process those things out loud since that, that is really how I personally process information and for me um, you know listeners who have listened before know that I identify as pansexual um, I um, have have dabbled with folks of varying um, gender identities and expressions and I um, had a really hard time claiming that identity uh, because I'm a person with a lot of queer friends and I live a more heteronormative life than some of them. And so for me, I was like, well, I'm the least queer queer in the friend group. So probably just straight. And so, um, but I I had acknowledged that when I had sex with femmes, that my sexual gender expression felt different in that I perceived that I was basically like the way that I thought about at the time was like well when I have sex with women I'm having sex like a man Mm. um and my the role that I give myself that I assign myself in that situation is so different than the role that I've been playing when I have sex with penis owners and so um you know with my partner as I had you know over time and years of um work really physically and emotionally like had the ability to talk about um ways that I could explore all facets of the role that I can play in any situation, given the fact that I am a cis woman in a um, monogamous heteronormative relationship with a cis man, right? Like how do I, um, how do I explore those things? It doesn't for me just have to be like a, Oh, I got drunk and hooked up with a girl that I met on Tinder. Like there, there's so much (laughs) more that can, that can be implemented into my sexual practice. And I think um, at least for me, aftercare conversation was a big part of that, or at least for me, that was part of the aftercare. Yeah. For sure. Totally. Awesome. Um, so as is probably pretty evident, um, I am a, a big fan of uh, over communication and, um, <laughs> you know, as a as uh, someone who can have sex anxiety, as many of us do, um, I think, um, you know, I and others, I'm sure, struggle to uh, communicate um kind of in advance of sex or during yeah. sex, um, sort of what you were talking about, you know, it's, uh, I don't want to say it's easy, but when you're in a, um, a contractual situation or, or uh, a sex work situation, um, you have to negotiate in advance because yeah. you're creating, you're, you're in a paid situation to create a certain experience. And it's yeah. um, for kind of either casual or romantic or otherwise uh, encounter, it's tricky to know how to go about doing that. Um, do you have any tips for how to keep um, that over communication or what should be basic communication, but what probably feels like over communication for a lot of people um, organic and sexy? Yeah. Well, one, I love whispering check-ins like, mm. Cause that's a way that you can make it hot to ask, like, do you feel good? You know? Mm -hmm. So like during sex, like whispering in your lover's ear, like, do you want it harder? Do you like that? And so like whispering in in your lover's (laughs) ear can be like a really erotic way to like ask the question you maybe need or want. Um, Another thing that I think any couple can adopt into their sex life. So in BDSM, we have a 
color system for a, like safe words. And I think this was also in Fifty Shades of Grey, but I don't remember. <laughs> um, Maybe. I don't remember. But there's, um, there's a, it's called the stoplight system, where if you're in a scene with somebody and they say red, it means stop. I, that everything needs to stop sex or anything else everything needs to stop check in with me and we probably aren't going to continue and now we're going to transition into aftercare yellow means check in with me i still can keep going probably do want to keep going but you know maybe the restraint is too tight or maybe like i'd need water you know who knows um and then green is like i'm good keep going and so what I think regular couples can really do in their sex life if they want to implement checking in with each other is like talk about when, again, use the three T's and bring up the idea of the stoplight system, not during sex. But then the next time you have sex, you can ask each other like, oh, what color are you? And then that's like a nice way to sort of, you know, just check in. Um, yeah. And then the other thing that I would say, which I think is just really important for us all to keep in mind, is that like boundaries are such a funny thing. You only figure out that you have a boundary after it's been crossed. So if you are in the moment and something happens and you didn't speak up in the moment or you didn't speak up personally or something like that, you know, give yourself the space for grace because you don't know what you don't know. And mm. When you discover and you step on a boundary and you realize like, ow, <laughs> I just stepped on a boundary, yeah. um, do your best to, you know, communicate that afterwards and, you know, use that time tone turf thing if that helps you, or maybe you're just going to blurt it out one day and, you know, but yeah. give yourself the space for grace for one, to know that it's not your fault when you hit a boundary and you didn't know that it was there. And then two, you know especially if you're really at the beginning of learning how to talk about sex with your lover, be really gentle with however it happens and know that like the win is saying what you need to say. Mm. And over time you can figure out how to say that in ways that are more effective or more gentle. And also one of the beautiful things about sexual communication, when it goes wrong, if it keeps going wrong enough times this might be a sign that you're not compatible with that person. You don't have the same communication styles. There could be a bigger issue that has nothing to do with you or sex, but has to do with a lack of compatibility. And maybe it's time to think of not being in that lovership or not being in that relationship or what have you. So, you know, I think we can be really afraid of having sexual communications because we're afraid of the worst case scenario. But actually, the worst case scenario isn't really a bad scenario because the universe might be telling you like, hey, you've learned all you can learn from this courtship and things are not really going well. And it's okay to move on. It's okay to leave. It's okay to recognize that like you're not as compatible because you can not like not being compatible in your communication style. That, that is a pretty big deal, you know, For and sure. that is definitely a valid reason to reconsider, you know, if you want to stay in a relationship. I feel like this is the optimism that you're talking about is that <laughs> even, even in the worst case scenario, the thing that we're probably the most scared of, which is, um, a partner not being receptive to um, a communication or or an, a sense of like an inability to successfully communicate with that person. Um, 
even in that in the worst case scenario like there's a lesson to be learned and I think that's so important I'm very big on everything everything is a life lesson even when something sucks and you just want to be mad or grieve it um which is totally valid like there's there's something to be found in all of that too yeah for sure and also feel your feelings you know feel your grief feel your anger anger is a very intelligent emotion even though it's Mm. a chaotic one so (laughs) is jealousy by the way you know jealousy is a really interesting intelligent emotion because we only get jealous when something or someone has what we want. Mm. And so jealousy can actually be a really powerful reframe if you are feeling it a lot for like, you're really jealous of a friend, or you're really jealous of your partner, or you're really jealous. That usually is a clue that there's something that you want, that maybe mm. you're not going after, or you don't think you're worthy of, or something's there, you know, Um, or jealousy, you know, it can also be a clue as to maybe something's wrong. I'm feeling jealous. I'm feeling envious. Something's going on with my partner. And and maybe there's like lies happening or cheating happening or something, you know, like, we, we really run away from feelings like anger or grief or jealousy. But they're really intelligent emotions. And they're not something to be afraid of, even though obviously, having a communication about sex and it going sideways and, you know, being turning out to be like a sticky and painful conversation. It's not what you want. But if that's the gift that you're given, recognize that there's intelligence in all the feelings that you're feeling, and that you can over time glean wisdom out of it. And that the best thing you could do for yourself, if you feel angry, like feel angry and be angry. If you feel Mm. grief, Feel your grief. You know, we don't really do ourselves any favors by suppressing sexuality or emotions. And in fact, the neuroscience of pleasure is really fascinating. So the pleasure pathway in the brain and the pain pathway in the brain, they share similar pathways. So Mm -hmm. if we numb feelings like jealousy or anger or grief or sadness, we also are going to numb our ability to experience pleasure. So you know, one of the positive things we can do when it comes to sexual communication, let it be messy and feel your feelings. Yes. I love that. I, true, true story had a, had about, um, in, in time in college where I, um, really struggled to orgasm and it had, um, previously not been as much of an issue. I mean, I probably have as much difficulty as, uh, the average vulva owner, but, um, uh, you know, I, was in a time of emotional stuntedness, so to speak. Mm. I had a lot of um, negative emotions that I was not processing. And, um, you know, what my the, my partner at the time uh, made a comment, and my friends still joke about it. It's funny now, but in the moment was not. Um, and after another sexual encounter where I did not have an orgasm, which, of course, he could not accept was not the end-all be-all of a sexual <laughs> encounter, um, he said, why don't you just fix yourself? <gasps> I know. And uh, again, it's I am so angry for now, you. Who is he? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Dude. if he listens to this, he knows. Um, he's come up a couple of times, but um, <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it's um, it's funny now because like, what a ridiculous thing to say to someone. But um, you know, like, it, there was eventually a time where I started like happy crying at commercials, and I was like, mm. what? A- I'm experiencing emotion like what's going on and then I was like holy shit like I'm experiencing a full range of emotions 
from sadness and anger and resentment and grief to Mm -hmm. joy and pleasure. And it's awesome. I mean, like the highs and lows are what make life and you have to, you can't just like seek the highs and hopes that the lows can be ignored. It's just not the way that it works. Totally. Yeah. And if you are struggling with your highs and lows in sex, like seek a sex therapist Mm -hmm. or a sex coach or a sex counselor. If you live in the United States, there is a database. You can go to ASECT, A-A-S-E-C-T dot org. I believe it's either dot org or dot com, but I think it's dot org. org. Yeah. And they have a database filled with sex educators, sex counselors, and sex therapists. And something that a lot of people don't know is that gynecologists and urologists, doctors, and the regular therapists, none of these people have any sex education training. It's not included in their curriculum at all, which is shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you think of a gynecologist or a urologist. And I do want to make the disclaimer to any gynecologist, urologist, nurse, medical professional that is listening to this podcast, you're amazing and we love you. And the fact that the system does not include that in the curriculum is not your fault and is in no way an attack against the beautiful work that you do. However, there is a real problem here in sex education from the level of youth all the way to the level of like the highest medical professionals. And there's this OBGYN, her name is Lindsay Harper, and she created Mm -hmm. an app called Rosie and it's a sexual wellness app. And it's one I especially recommend for people who are pre-menopausal or post-menopausal because I think that that app is really geared more towards cisgendered women on the straight spectrum who are over 40. Um, If you're someone who's on the queer spectrum and also wants like a sexual health app, Coral is a great one. Um, And if you're a millennial or Gen Z, I also recommend Coral. I feel like that app is a little bit more connected to that demographic. Um, But anyway, going back to the app, Rosie, the reason why I brought it up is Dr. Lindsay Harper is a gynecologist who discovered that she had no sex education training, was Mm. pissed with a capital P, and in 2019 started this app. And like not, you know, and, and, and then she went and got like certified as a sex educator and like filled that gap in her knowledge. And so unless someone is going to go out of their way to educate themselves about sex, most medical professionals and most therapists do not have sex education training. So if you are looking for a resource for sex, especially a therapeutic one, You need to find someone who is a sex therapist specifically or a sex Mm -hmm. counselor or a sex educator or a sex coach because these are people who actually have the training that other medical professionals don't have, which again is not their fault. But but it's important to say because you might go to a regular therapist because you have issues with sex and while you're with someone who does know about psychology, they, they have a gap missing. So this might not be the best expert for you. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I, you know, as um, like a, a person who lives in a, uh, I, live, I live like in a pretty kinky world. Um, like when <laughs> I was finding my brain therapist, not my sex therapist, um, I was like, you know, having intro calls. Like, I'm not saying you have to fully understand what I'm talking about, but you do have to be informed enough to where when I talk to you about some of my sexual experiences and my identity as a sexual being that one like at the very least you're comfortable yeah and two like you know like enough to kind of like have a conversation with me about it obviously as my therapist luckily I found that um and two I've been seeing uh the same OBGYN for uh 
six years, five or six years. And I don't know what she's done, but in the last two years, two or three years, I noticed a distinct uh, change in her behavior and her practice. And I, Mm. like two years ago, was like, oh, oh, she's trauma informed now, like Mm -hmm. completely different, Mm -hmm. like. And and for me again, I you know share this with my listeners as someone who's experienced sexual trauma and sexual assault. Yeah. Like I you know I've I've had I just got used to like staring at the ceiling and being like it's fine it's fine it's fine like this is medical I'm in my body it's all gonna be cool. But yeah. the fact that I can like go to an OBGYN and have like a positive experience without having yeah. to like think about all my coping mechanisms like that's amazing as well. And it's really hard to find that, which is super unfortunate. And again, to your point, like not at all the fault of the the doctors and nurses in, in that space, but they're just not given those tools. It's not required no. of them. They're not given the tools and then they're burnt out. So it's like, I yeah. mean, Lord have mercy. Like imagine going to school and doing your residency. 10 years later, you're a doctor. You're finally paying off some of your debt. And then you realize like you don't have sex education training. Frankly, if I was in a doctor's shoes, I'd be like, fuck that. <laughs> I'm not doing this. Like I yeah. got enough shit to deal with and I've got patients and I've got debt. Like, no, thank you. So I yeah. also think it's like not, it's truly not anybody's fault. And like, even if someone like figures out about the gap in their knowledge and isn't like very proactive about doing something about it right away, I can also even understand that, you know, like the system is really failing us and like it's, it's the system's fault. Yeah. It's stuff that's being treated as like above and beyond practice as opposed to just part of the basic training as it should be. And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, totally like I would be worn out too. And also like, Right now, the understanding is that you can be a good doctor or nurse without it, and and to an extent that's true. But yeah, it, but it's fa- but it's it is leads or it can lead to failing certain people or requiring that they seek other resources, which is unfortunate. Oh, hundred percent. You know, like there are so many people who experience sexual trauma and they don't know what a pelvic floor therapist is, which by the way, pelvic floor therapist is someone who's basically a um, physical therapist for the groin. (laughs) (laughs) So there's someone who knows how to rehabilitate your groin muscles. And when Mm -hmm. you experience trauma, especially if it's a little bit violent and body based on your groin, your groin's going to remember that, right? And so like a pelvic floor therapist, and that's something that I did because I'm a sexual assault survivor. And I went years experiencing really painful sex after my trauma, because Mm -hmm. every time penetrative sex was on the table, my whole vagina would close, the muscles of my vagina would contract, it would make penetration very painful. This is something called vaginismus, where the muscles of the vagina contract really, really tight to the point where you couldn't even fit in a tampon or a finger. Um, And it wasn't until I saw a pelvic floor therapist that I was able to start healing that. And, and Mm. by the way, and obviously everybody's journey with healing their body is going to be different, but I was so pissed because I only found out about a pelvic floor therapist, like after being a sex educator for like eight years. (laughs) So I didn't really know much because there's so much to study about sex. So I didn't even really know much about pelvic floor therapists. And then I was at dinner with a friend of mine who's a sex therapist. And I was talking about my vaginismus. And at the time I was dating this guy and he had a huge dick. (laughs) And I was just like, I hate sex. (laughs) 
like, I hate sex with this person. And she was like, well, have you? And I was telling her, I'm like, I know I have vaginismus. I try smoking weed, which that also did help me a lot. Um, It isn't for everyone, but CBD products and smoking a little bit of weed has really helped me with that as well. But, um, Mm -hmm. and so I was talking to my friend about it and she was like, well, have you ever seen a pelvic floor therapist? And I was like, I always hear what those are, but can you explain it a little bit more? And she did. And so then a week later, I went and saw my gynecologist. I asked to be referred to a pelvic floor therapist. I had two sessions with this woman and I stopped experiencing painful sex. It was a huge game changer. And I was so angry that even as a sex educator and a sex scholar, I spent so much, almost a decade experiencing pain or avoiding sex with people who had a penis. And I could have had a very healing situation if I just knew about this expert. And that's what the problem is. Like a lot of times gynecologists, you know, someone who has experienced trauma to their body or sexually will go to a gynecologist hoping to seek resources and the gynecologist won't even refer them to a pelvic floor therapist because they were not trained. And it's, you know, it's a really, it's a really unfortunate thing. So please go and see a pelvic floor therapist. In fact, it's quite healthy to see them once a year. <laughs> like, Oh, awesome. Yeah. 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 Very, I mean, maintenance at the minimum, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Well, I'm, I want to say, I'm sorry that it was, it, it came to you after so many years. I know that yeah, it, pain and discomfort know. is frustrating. Um, I'm lucky in that I didn't have uh, any, physical discomfort after um the sexual trauma that I experienced so much but I um yeah I mean had had a really tough time in most sexual situations and avoided a lot and it took me a long time before uh figuring out how to seek treatment for that and when I did it was like fucking mind-blowing and so um you know knowing that there are a ton of different resources out there depending on uh, what it is that you've experienced and sort of what the impact of that has been on your on your brain and your the rest of your body as well. So uh, pelvic yeah. floor therapy, I feel like I, I should do a whole episode on that, honestly, because people yeah, don't absolutely. understand it. Totally. Um, I didn't I hadn't heard of it until I sort of entered the the space, so to speak, even as someone who has been like always sex positive and sex interested, like just hadn't yeah. encountered it at all. Um, so uh Kind of one one more thing I'd love to uh, chat about here before we wrap up is we've talked a lot about, um, you know, the experience of having boundaries violated either mm-hmm. to an extreme or sort of um, to kind of what we were talking about earlier, like um, just in a situation where you don't know something's a boundary until it's been crossed and, and having to uh, give yourself patience and grace to explore that and think about um you know, what you enjoy and don't enjoy really. But I guess, um, you know, after experiencing some kind of boundary violation, um, how do you think about or encourage others to test, um, test the sexual waters, so to speak? Mm. Like after the boundary has been crossed and then you're like trying to be sexual again? Yeah. Well, I would say make a list of the things that you enjoy that maybe aren't explicitly sexual. So Mm. kissing, massage, Um, if 
if touch has been a violating experience and you're with a partner that you trust, a really wonderful exercise is to give each other hand and foot massages when you're fully clothed and mm-hmm. express beforehand, this isn't foreplay. Um, you know, this isn't, this may not lead to sex. That's not the point of this, but give each other hand and foot massages. And the purpose of the massages is for you to literally guide each other and normalize what it feels like to give and receive feedback when it comes to touch. Um, Mm. so that can be a really, really wonderful way with, with a lover to explore that. Um, and then, yeah, look at all the ways that you enjoy pleasure that aren't explicitly sexual. So kissing, having your hair brushed or fingers running through your hair. Um, Ooh, being tickled. Um, (laughs) And then other ways too is to go out and treat yourself to a professional massage because your body deserves nourishment and physical, you know, you were talking about skin hunger. So I would also say like, treating yourself to a massage, like erotic wellness is so much deeper than just having sex. And there's so many ways that we actually practice erotic wellness in our everyday life, and we don't even realize it. And the way that I like to define erotic wellness is using pleasure based practices to soothe your nervous system. We live in a very pleasure negative culture. So we get trained from a very young age that pleasure is bad. And then when we're experiencing moments of pleasure, there's a lot of anxiety attached to it of like, maybe I'm being naughty, maybe I'm overindulging, maybe I'm slutty. Um, And so like erotic wellness is very simple ways to experience pleasure and retrain yourself to not associate that with anxiety, shame, the the feeling that you're wrong or bad. And like I said, erotic wellness, you're probably already doing it and you don't even know. Like one thing that I consider to be erotic wellness is your grooming routines in the morning and in the evening Mm -hmm. or your beauty routines because you're touching your skin, you're nourishing your skin, you're taking things slow, you're appreciating your beauty, you're taking care of yourself. Beauty routines and grooming routines are such a pleasure-based ritual. And like, so there are so many ways that I think we're having small wins with pleasure every single day. And that Mm. can be another way to like re-get yourself back into the feeling of trusting pleasure again is connecting to all different types of sensory pleasures that aren't going to be as sexual. So that way you can experience the small wins and guide yourself back to a place of trusting pleasure. I love that. I think uh, it's so easy in um, today's society to just, uh, or at least in conversations I've had and, um, and and things I've read, you know, the inclination if uh, is either to completely sort of shut down from pleasure and uh, physical, excuse me, uh, sensation altogether, or um, to sort of try to dive head first back into it. And yeah. um, both can be uh, additionally traumatic uh, yeah. for sure and so um, I love that the hand and foot massage I mean I ne- never would have thought about it. that's awesome um, yeah. and something hopefully and- people should embrace to your point people should embrace the little um, the little things more for sure yeah and I'd also say you know it's it's so normal if you have been traumatized sexually to want to jump back into sex again 
and do it very quickly and almost be like hyper promiscuous. It's also very normal for you to not want to be touched. Like it's very normal for us to jump into extremes after a trauma has happened, especially when it relates to sex. And if you're someone who's on your healing journey and maybe you don't have a therapist or a sex therapist or something like that, I really recommend the book Healing Sex, A Mind-Body Approach to Healing Sexual Trauma by Mm. Stacey Haynes. This is an incredible book. At the end of every single chapter, there's questions you can ask yourself and exercises you could do to get back in touch with yourself. The research is incredible. Um, Stacey Haynes is a somatic therapist. So Mm. somatics are body-based therapies. um, And they're really incredible when it comes to healing sexual trauma because sex is a bodily experience and your body holds trauma as well. So... You know, if you are someone who is healing your journey, you don't have a therapist right now, or maybe you can't afford a therapist because that shit is expensive. And like, that's real too. I really recommend that book. It's real. It's incredible. If you're someone who has experienced incest, molestation, that book specifically talks about those topics as well. Um, Mm. So much of sexual assault happens by people that we know and we know very well. If that happened to you, it was not your fault. Um, but I really recommend that book, that, that book. I mean, I've read it. Every person that I know who has experienced sexual assault, who has read it has had incredibly positive experiences. It's a really great book. Awesome. I'm going to add it to my Amazon cart. Um, (laughs) I love it. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, as a sex educator, obviously the resources are, um, I was going to say endless. I mean, that's not true, but um, it's always exciting <laughs> to find new readings um, for personal totally. growth and for overall understanding of, of the various experiences. Um, awesome. Well, Nadege, how do people find you? How do they find your content? If they want to work with you, what does that look like? Yeah, well, you can go to pleasurescience.com um, or you can, I'm on Instagram at Pleasure Science. I'm on TikTok at Pleasure Science, you know, so you don't need to know how to pronounce or spell my name because my name is hard, <laughs> but you, you can go to Pleasure Science anywhere and you can find me. If you want a sextrology reading, go ahead and go to the Pleasure Science website to see the availability for reservations. If you're interested in sex coaching, you can fill out the application and get a 15 minute discovery call to see if I'm a good fit for you or if I should refer you to someone else because I have a huge database of people and, you know, I do really like to help people. So if you have a question, you know, you could go to pleasurescience.com and reach out and either I can help you or I can refer you to someone who's better suited for you. Um, and then, yeah, other, oh, and my book, duh, I have my book coming out too. (laughs) Yeah. So I have the, my sextrology book coming out, which goes over your sexual subconscious, according to astrology, as well as lust compatibility. So if that's interesting to you, you could go to amazon.com and you could find it under sextrology and my name, which is very unique. (laughs) And and that's pretty much it, you know, just, just pleasure science (laughs) at all the places. Amazing. Amazing. And I will put all of those things, including your book, uh, in the uh, show notes. So for folks who did not retain all that information, uh, you can check it below. Um, And 
Yes, Nadej, it's been amazing chatting with you. I was so excited to have you on. And um, I feel like we covered a ton of information, all of which I think is also very practical and useful, which doesn't always happen when you're talking uh, kind of abstractly about sex and sex education. Totally. So hopefully, um, you know, listeners are are taking notes as they should be and uh, can implement some really great communication tools and other like general sexual mindfulness into their day-to-day activities. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me, but also thank you for the work that you do. You know, anyone who feels called to do the sex work in this current historical moment that we're in, it's so necessary. We need all the sex positive people. And I just so appreciate the way that you approach this space. And oh my God, before we leave, I need to know your astrology sign. Are you an air sign? Are you like a Gemini or an Aquarius? I'm an Aquarius. Yes, you guys. I am honest to God. I am so good at guessing people's astrology sign. Do not tempt me. Oh my God. I love it. So what gave me away? Can you just quickly like... I mean, obviously you have a knack for this. I, this is not something I have a knack for, though I think it's fascinating. Like, I'd love to just hear from your perspective how you knew. <laughs> um, well, one, all air signs are the signs of communication. So people who are sure. um, audible <laughs> and vocal processors, nine okay. times out of 10, either have an air sign sun placement or an air sign moon placement. Your moon placement represents your emotional core in astrology. Mm-hmm. So um, so right off the bat, the fact that you said that you were like this uh, audible processor, and then also just like your energy, like the optimism that you have, definitely an air sign or fire sign type of thing, um, the kind of fast-paced energy you seem to bring, um, at least to this conversation and all the curiosity, all very air sign stuff. And specifically Aquarius, because Aquarius is the humanitarian of the Zodiac. They want to help other people. And they do that by serving the collective specifically. And having Mm. a podcast is a way to connect to the collective and create community. So everything that, and it's funny because I like don't know you very well and have really only met you (laughs) through this podcast, but all of these things are very, very Aquarius or like I, the other guest was Gemini. Gemini is the sign of communication and they mm-hmm. represent local community. So that mm-hmm. was why I was like, either one of these, either one of these could be a hit. I think it's fascinating and I'm super excited to um, get your book when it comes out and learn a little yeah. bit more about that. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. 